Saskatoon? The first first request from a reader was to make it an Elon free zone. I refuse to call him Elon. I call him Musk. I feel like it's weird, the first name, familiarity. Well, the last bit of advice that I would give on Twitter, if Elon asked me, is I would say, Elon, the world is basically unchanged since high school. You know, like the famous Ferris Bueller thing, but they're like the cool kids and the theater kids and the burnouts and the smart and righteous ones, the weirdos, the jocks, the in-betweeners. And I think that if Elon and those people had it their way, they're like, we're going to own the libs. And this is like free speech. And like, here's the thing that no one went to their parties. They weren't cool. And if those guys chase all the cool kids out of Twitter, there's no Twitter. You can't chase the liberals out of Twitter. They're the cool kids. People versus Algorithms is a show about detecting patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy, writer of the Rebooting Newsletter and a podcast of the same name. And each week, I'm joined by Hearst Magazine's executive, Troy Young, who writes the People versus Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer of Universal Entities. Alex, unfortunately, could not make it this week. But last week, you know, Troy and I discussed how we're in a period of transitions, occupying an in-between space where we are reasonably sure a prior period is ending, and yet we're still unsure about what comes next. One hallmark of transitions is uncertainty. It is a feature, not a bug, and embracing uncertainty has many benefits because you're more likely to readjust and adapt as hypotheses prove true or untrue. Now, this isn't a good time to be an all-knowing oracle. We've seen this all over the place. If you were sure that there would be a red wave in this week's midterms, surprise, you were wrong. And now, if you were Sam Bankman-Fried, CEO of FTX, or one of his well-heeled backers, you lost most of your money when FTX collapsed this week. Nobody saw this coming. And what I've noticed is this is a time of a lot of mea culpas of powerful people, from Stripe's Collison Brothers to Meta's Mark Zuckerberg. They're all coming out with, uh, you know, with apologies for overhiring during the pandemic boom times. Meanwhile, over at Twitter, Elon Musk, probably the most accomplished entrepreneur of our time, and his merry band of podcasters slash hangers on, continue to throw spaghetti against the wall uh, with what to do with Twitter, seemingly without any rhyme. They're powerful, they're successful, so we should trust that they're going to work it out, right? I'm not so sure. And after listening to Elon Musk's call with advertisers yesterday, I'm even less sure. So Troy and I unpack uh, why these very smart and accomplished people still get so many big things very, very wrong. As always, please send me your feedback. My email is bmarcy at gmail.com. And please do leave a rating and review of this podcast if you're an Apple Podcast user. Okay, let's go. So Troy, we got to talk about FTX to start because it was a bad week for, for crypto. And I was reminded of a little over... I don't know. It was like a year and a half ago. I came back to New York. I was like extremely tan from Miami. And you were like, you've got to get into crypto. You're standing outside of your station wagon and you roped me in. Like like all Ponzi schemes, Ponzi schemes, you know, you roped me in. And now this, this Sam Bankman-Fried character who he seemed like one of the good guys in a sea of scurrilous characters, crazy hair, suspect hygiene, giant brain, 
some progressive politics mixed in. He wanted to do it legit. This guy had a bad week. And Very bad. What I wonder beyond him losing, I don't know, $30 billion, million, whatever, billion dollars, supposedly he's going he's gonna to have to be bankrupt soon. How, how can crypto go forward on this? It was already dealing with a lot of doubts, well-earned doubts. And I don't know, this, this is a tough one to, to overcome, I feel like. Well, I mean, I think you're maybe framing it wrong. So I think the thing that we liked or that we were excited about is the, you know, the, the concept of, of Bitcoin is, is really interesting and elegant and will survive and sustain and I think have a huge impact on the financial world. This isn't about Bitcoin or Ether. This is about how a company, you know, structured itself using its own token as collateral. And so it created a scenario where it could, you know, be destabilized incredibly easily. So this is a structural problem between um, two of uh, the, the two companies, one being FTX, the other one's called what, Altimeter or no, what was Alameda. The, Alameda. 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 But they're both part of, so it's like FTX and Alameda, FTX.com are part of FTX. FTX US is separate. And it's all this like... I don't know. These kind of very complicated things, when things go wrong, you start to think, hmm, there might be a reason that this is all convoluted. Well, I would encourage anybody that wants to understand how it came apart to to take a look at money stuff from today. Uh, Matt Levine's, Matt yeah. Levine's column, and you know, he writes with his own imitable flair, and he actually breaks it down really simply, talk about how banks work and what happens when there's margin call and what happens when you lend out money that's, you know, that you take in from a depositor and, you know, what happens when there's this third party that, you know, basically borrows money and uses this token, the FTT as collateral and how that could create a really unstable situation. So my answer to your, your question is I'm still very bullish on, on Bitcoin and on Ethereum and on the blockchain. And, but, you know, my take on it is it's going to be radically important to the future of how we build the next kind of wave of, of applications on the internet, particularly around things like, uh, loyalty management, identity, um, social networking. I think you'll see, uh, that, that the blockchain becomes really, really important in the next wave. And so I'm bullish still, Brian, yeah. this isn't, this isn't scaring me off. This is okay. You're, you're got diamond hands. So. I remember back in the dot-com days, and we talked about this. Um, it's a fab, but it's a great story, by the way. It will make for great, great, great... Uh, oh, it's going to be pe- great. Uh, ...streaming television. I saw Alex Lieberman from Morning Brew had like... A, he's like a LinkedIn influencer now. It's a strange like second career, but he's still young. He uh, he was like taking bets on on who was going to play SBF in the movie. I think and he had, one of the guys was the Stranger Things kid. He's now not a kid anymore, and I think he'd be perfect. Oh yeah, my son. My son knows that kid or had this hot dog with him or something. He lives in Vancouver. Yeah, that's a funny one. I you could like maybe Jonah Hill or something if he was younger. Yeah, with the Hollywood people, they just they love to like either lose like a ton of weight, gain a ton of weight, you know, be younger, be older. But I think one of the things that I I was reminded of was in the dot com era. You know, everyone looked at the everyone looked at the prices of the stocks and the Nasdaq, and they didn't look at the the continued progress to be made because people were still building the internet. The internet was like the place where the opportunity was. 
I guess what I wonder is, does this stop the flows, the flow of capital, the flow of talent? Because it becomes less cool, right? To there's say a, that there's you're a lot working of, on sudden, this. Suddenly there's a lot of talent out there, right? But with the meta, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't make yeah. laugh, but they had it good for a while. Sorry, meta people. They had it really good, yeah. Um, <laughs> don't worry, I haven't we'll had a full-time we'll, job in over two years. It's fine. You'll be fine. We'll get there. So now, you know what? I think it's, uh, does it hurt the case for crypto? And I think not really. Nah. Nope. Okay, so it's a big nothing burger. My other big question for this is, this guy like seemed like brilliant. It right? makes a case for regulation, right? Yeah, no, he's a compelling character. He's great. I like him. Yeah, yeah. So how could he be so dumb? Like, I mean, that like, isn't it like, okay, I don't understand. I, I read Matt Levine and stuff like this. And a lot of this stuff is like, I'm just not, I wouldn't say I'm financially illiterate, but like it's, it's close. And I understand the broad concepts and stuff, but in, in reading through what exactly happened here, I'm like, whoa, how did this guy who is building this new world, how did he, how did he fuck up that bad? Like, and we've, we've come across this repeatedly where these people who are the most powerful and seemingly the smartest really get it completely wrong. Like this wasn't a small screw up. He wrecked the company. He wrecked like his own personal finance. It was, am I? No, I mean, I think what you're talking about, let's call them billionaire blinders. And it's this kind of bravado that maybe makes you overlook things that are huge risks to your business. And in this case, he thought that FTX was so invincible that the value of its token would not be compromised and that no one would ultimately force him into this, you know, difficult position by essentially shorting his, his token. I, I he also uh, pissed I, off that CZ guy, that CZ guy. I don't uh, know him. I don't know a thing about this, this, uh, Changpeng guy. I do not want to cross him. I love this. I is don't want to made, cross him. This is made for a nine parter. This is going to be good. Yeah, he, he, uh, she's, you know, I, I, I think we need a, I'd love to see a, you know, some type of redemption story on this one. It's going to take some time though. Well, he's, he's only 30. So like, yeah. and I like, it'll be another, another thing is the investors, right? Like they just piled what, like 400 million into this company in January. Like it's Sequoia, anyone... was it Sequoia? I think put 400 in, right? Or 250 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's like. Tiger is always involved. SoftBank is always involved. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, some like Ontario teachers lost uh, a, a shit ton. Their pension fund was just being like, no, this is totally solid. Like, this is a great well, they're, they're really no, They're a really notable fund. They're one of the most progressive pension funds, uh, big funds around. Yeah. And they're known for being, you know, up till this point, I guess, yeah. very sharp investors. Well, one of the things, this is a complete aside, but since you're Canadian, and a lot of people probably don't know that. I had no idea that Canada was such like a risk-taking place with like financial like shenanigans and wildcatting and like penny stocks and whatnot. Like it's a very vibrant and scruffy financial system up north that I don't think people totally appreciate. I had a it's, former colleague who tried to get me into Canadian penny stocks during the boom days. Thankfully, I did not take him up on that. I don't think I would characterize the country that way. I think there is a little bit of a kind of frontier mentality, but you know, there's a lot of mining stocks and there's a lot yeah. of penny stocks and that kind of stuff. But uh, for the most part, you know, people keep their money in the four banks that have, you know, controlled the economy for, you know, forever. And two telcos, it's very simple country. 
very good. I thought it was. People. I thought it was used to boom and bust with the with the with the. You know, it's a natural resources economy at the end of the day, right? Like, what you else you know what I do? Have you seen that show? This is a little bit of a segue. A little bit, a lot of it. That show on HBO where they do the reenactments. Come on, come on, come on. Work with me here. No, I only watch White Lotus on HBO. Okay, forget it. There. The guys from Canada. It's just that we 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 registered another win in the kind of. Um, oh, that guy. Oh, I know that guy. Uh, Nathan. Yes, Nathan. Fielder or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, He's creepy and weird and. Yeah, yeah I, I want to like it. I don't totally. We'll, t- we'll, we'll take it. it. The show's weird. It's not. It's not easy entertainment, but it's really super interesting. Kind of meta. I you know, concept of, of identity and and how we think about like what is real and stuff. It's cool. It's like an evolved Borat as far as I can tell. Right, we'll All leave right, it so at that. Let's, let's leave it at that and move on to Meta joining the parade of tech companies that make deep cuts. This is another one of a billionaire who's saying, oops, I did it. I did it again. And Mark Zuckerberg, you know, admirably, I think that actually Meta actually executed layoffs if you can, very well, seemingly. But he took responsibility for making the wrong call during the pandemic. And this is what he pinned these this 11,000 cuts on, that basically he saw the shifts going on and thought these were, were permanent. And uh, Facebook, along with its peers, got massive during the pandemic. You know, Facebook doubled in size, and now they're, they're, they're cutting back. Again, this is another one where I'm sort of left wondering, why did they have these kind of blind spots and whether this is just the way we have to operate in a technologically advanced capitalist economy, these booms and busts? Yeah, it's a good question because I'm trying to figure out what the alternative was, but certainly Facebook wasn't the only one to overinvest, Brian, right? Like Amazon built bigger facilities that they regret and Shopify overinvested. Lots of companies overinvested. And I, and I think a lot of us thought that many of the trends around you know, work and, you know, shopping and all of that were going to, you know, certainly if there was some, you know, moderation of those trends, they, they would still have changed the trajectory of these businesses. I don't think that's really the, the right way to look at the Facebook thing. I think that that company's been successful for a long, long time. They've been, you know, everybody needs to remember that these companies, particularly people that, are, you know, that that have run media companies, you know, the, the making of the thing, the content, the stuff that that defines what your business is, you know, costs 30, 40 percent of, uh, you know, uh, uh, is 34 to 40 percent of your expense. And, you know, they're running a platform that reaches billions of people. Now, admittedly, there's lots of tech expense and hosting expense and content moderation and all that. But these are immensely profitable businesses. And you know what? I hadn't realized until last week that 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 Meta had a staggering eighty-seven thousand employees. That's like the size of my hometown, Saskatoon. It's Regina, Regina. Stop it. Uh, uh, but you know, it's a couple hundred thousand. But still, it's eighty-seven thousand. A lot of people, and I know there's a bunch of people in content moderation and all that. But still, a huge number of people. And uh, I think that these companies can run way, way leaner. Clearly there's pressure on them to do so. It's a different world. Money has a different cost now. There's way more pressure on the on the revenue side. And it just makes sense that they that they that they do this at this point. 
they, they for sure overhired, but what he was real, what really happened is he had a little bit of that kind of invincibility vibe and he thought he could just keep growing and growing and growing. And then a couple of things happened. One, I think was that we shouldn't ignore is regulation and regulation has really pinned them in. It's meant that they have to, their growth is limited because they can't buy assets. So what they did is they so wait, you, said, you think you think regulation from governments had a bigger impact than regulation yeah. from Apple, which is a government, I guess. I mean, I think it was all of the above, but I think that not being able to buy, you know, not to be able to build out a payments business or buy their way into it, not being able to buy, you know, other, you know, tangential social networks or move into other B2B areas. I mean, I think there's lots of things you could have done if you were you know, doing MA at Facebook with all the money they had. Instead, what they said is we are, you know, they're going to reject any of, you know, the moves we make here. So we're just going to, we're going to kind of pour billions and billions of dollars into creating the next kind of surface area and operating system in, in the metaverse. That's really what happened. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how much of the cuts end up cutting into that vision. Which is very far yeah, out. Yeah, was there any was there any reporting on that? That was my I, next question. I haven't I haven't seen that they. I mean, I don't think they'll be gutting those teams exactly. But at the same time, like it's a really difficult one because they have to keep this existing business spinning, and it is it's weakened. I know you're very bullish and all that, but it's weakened. Like there's no two yeah, ways yeah. about it. This is the weakest state that they've been in in, in some time. Still very strong, and if they don't keep that spinning like it could get very bad for them so i i do wonder though how how in Hopefully the world they made better choices around cutting into the sales and marketing organization than elon do how do you mean i i think he was reckless and didn't understand how important fucking media sales is to you know paying the bills well, that is that is that is our next topic let us let us move on to i mean i did i sort of won you know i started using that Substack chat thing and the first first request from a reader was to make it an elon free zone i refuse to call him elon i call him musk i feel like it's weird the first name familiarity reminds me of like women's tennis like with chrissy and martina and stuff like that well who who wanted you to make it an elon free zone uh a a loyal reader okay well i think that's unreasonable but yeah let's talk about that because also this like ties into layoffs right like i've i've been on the other end of layoffs I've, I've had to do a little bit like before really difficult to to do right you know and right by the organization right by the people being affected i mean this is like not a good day like everyone everyone remembers the day you get told like you no longer have a job like you will not remember 99 percent plus percent of your days but you You're will brutal. remember that day. i've done many 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 of them So walk through for those who have not been engaged in like a fairly sizable layoff. First of all, how it gets done, because it's rarely done, quote unquote, well. I mean, I don't know if there's a way to do it well. I mean, I think that you can be as transparent as the business will allow you to be. You can explain sort of what forced the decision, although that's not really comforting to anybody. You can say that you know, as Zuckerberg did acknowledge the role he played in it, 
you can, you know, the most important thing in a layoff is that you do everything you can to, you know, to, to, to pay people out to the extent that the business, you know, allows that. And, you know, that, 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 uh, that you can make landing and finding another thing easy. So it's really a financial thing, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's obviously ways that you can do it with sensitivity and dignity, but, you know, it rolls through your HR organization. You try to plan every, you know, every detail, the timing of it, all of the communication, and there's nothing really that you can do to make it easier on a person that one day had a job and really loved their job and yeah. they say it doesn't. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. But there's Other the than, people front, but that's the, but the organization front is also important, right? Because you've got the people who are leaving the organization, but you have the, the organization itself that's going to remain afterwards. And you have to think about both, right? Like it's not just, yes, you have to you know, be main and stuff like this, but ultimately you have loyalty to the organization and those who will not be leaving. Well, I think that's a good, that's a good point. That's sort of your, your sort of day two planning around explaining to those that, are there, you know, what it means to the business and what, it ha what happens to their roles and what about the things that you relied on people to do that are no longer there and all that stuff. So it, it's just a, a huge amount of planning and it's not easy. Yeah. So it seems like Twitter skipped all of that <laughs> in large part. I mean, they're, they were, they were asking people to come back after they, after they can them, which must've been an interesting negotiation. I mean, it, I, I, you know, for a while I wanted to cheer for Elon because, you know, he's like a superhero. You want to see him win, but he totally fucked up about 20 things. Like it's just brutal to watch actually. All the communication around it, the lightheartedness that like, you know, like making fun and stuff on Twitter. He, he, he's, he's, he's acting like a child. And the people that he's brought in to support him are like the wrong people. I, I, I just don't think he's doing himself any favors. And, and, and I think that like, it's interesting that like the guy that handles sort of security, have you been following this guy on Twitter? Who's, you know, talking about, Oh yeah, it's cool that he's become more transparent than ever, but there's other things that I think you need to think through before you start having Jason Calacanis run polls for them on his Twitter feed. <laughs> no comment. I, this should be a Jason Calacanis free zone. Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree w with that because I don't know how. It's funny because like you know, Elon Musk is is obviously incredibly successful with with his his businesses. I wonder, I, although with this experience, I wonder like who is like running Tesla at this point, and like there, and maybe I've missed it, but is there like a long like lineage of like former like Elon Musk acolytes who have gone on to like, you know, found and run like sizable businesses. I just wonder how he's just I mean, not I, I, organizationally minded. Not only, I, I mean, I just think that running a car company is really different than running not just a media company, but a social media company and one called Twitter. Like it's, it's the most complicated company to run from a, communication and constituency management point of view of probably any company on the planet, right? Like it's, it, 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 I just think that you have to be incredibly, like when there's this kind of sense of ownership from the community of the company, they have a proprietary relationship with the company. You have been a user of Twitter and shit talking it forever and saying, I could do this better and making fun of it and all that. And then you come in and you kind of blow the place up. I mean, what do you expect? It just seems so stupid. 
Well, it seems like a shock and awe theory, you know, approach where, and I think it's, it's one. I mean, like, I think a lot of times you have people like they take over and they don't seem like they have a plan. I don't know if, if he and his, his, his merry band <laughs> have, a, have a plan exactly. They seem to be throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall, but they're at least doing things. Did There's you activity. tell me, yeah, no, that, that's admirable. But didn't you say in the text today that he hosted some kind of lunch and learn with oh, the yeah. ad community? Can you tell us about that? Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah, so like he did a Because I've done many a lunch and learn. You know, <laughs> well, his lunch and learns are different. So he did a, and this is one where I'm like, okay, now you're leaning into sort of what makes you unique as Elon Musk. And like, you're like one of the most famous people in the world. And so he had a Twitter spaces with like pre-invited brands. And of course they, they all showed up. Along with when I, when I like saw it at the end, there was 111,000 people in this Twitter space listening to Elon Musk like talk to advertisers, and of course the advertisers were all like on mute. They like to talk big, like in like anonymous quotes to the press, and so he like brought them out like in front of 110,000 people. <laughs> nobody, so you, nobody was going to say anything. In? Yeah, I listened in. It was mostly oh, him a- talking. It was mostly, you know, it was a lot of like spaghetti against the wall. And he wasn't no, addressing... No, what was the message? What was the message? Message was they're going to like figure it out. That they that he, wants the pl- that he wants it to be like a great place and very healthy and stuff like this. He didn't address the things that, that caused severe doubt, I think, in most advertisers. He didn't address like his erratic behavior at all. He didn't address the the tweet about Paul Pelosi. He really just said in passing stuff around GARM and brand safety. I don't think he really thinks about that stuff at all. He was just like, yeah, I uh, 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 want to keep, you know, yeah, keep you away from bad stuff. So, yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't think it'll do much, but at least used his like star power. And I don't blame advertisers for not like... Uh, challenging him that much on on the call but that's that's the whole thing it's like it's almost intimidation right like he went on twitter and said that he's gonna go thermonuclear on advertisers that choose not to spend money on twitter first of all no brand advertiser i don't know any advertiser who would think of twitter as a must buy that's just not gonna that's not gonna work nope no, I mean, this is what I was saying, the difference between selling a car and selling advertising. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a real kind of power and balance and balance and relationship requirement that is, you gotta, you gotta get out there, and, you know, kiss babies and shake hands and you gotta eat you gotta, shit, Troy, give me a break. You gotta like clap when the CMO gets up and drones on with the dumb speech. That's what I'm saying. Selling media is its own thing. And maybe he didn't, maybe Calacanis didn't give him that memo. There's no way he's going to suck up to like the CMO of P&G. It's just, I mean, what's the point of being the richest guy in the world if you got to do that? <laughs> no shit. No shit. Totally. I will do that. Okay. But related to that, if you don't mind me, I, I, yeah. I'm not going to boss you around in, in, in the podcast, but the... Yeah. Uh, there was uh, it was interesting to see that Substack is seeing this as an as a moment, I guess, and oh, yeah. they're trying to build out their engagement kind of tools and technologies. And I was surprised yesterday to see that anybody that has a Substack account can kind of create a 
open thread, right? Yeah. And the question that I was asking you is, A, A, what did you think of that? Did you like it? Was it cool? Do you think it's going to grow? Because it's a very different idea about building community around authors and communities of narrow interest. And secondly, how do I have this where I think that all technology applications, websites, media brands, they'll give you kind of a feeling, right? Like aside from their functional benefits and, you know, they deliver this bit of information and meets this need and so on, they'll give you a feeling. And, you know, I've had a good feeling, for example, about Apple products for many, many years, and it makes me want to buy more. And I'm not a Twitter power user. I kind of suck at Twitter and I don't really pay much attention. But lately, I would say for the last three, four months, I've been using it a lot. Not as a tweet, but just as, as a way to get information. Mm -hmm. I guess it roughly corresponded with my need to be smarter so I could write the stupid newsletter. <laughs> and what I find lately is I don't want to go to it. I just don't, I don't want, I don't want to, I, I don't want us to, to spend time in a really toxic place. And that's just, and that may be not true. I don't know, but it just feels like there's too much talk about it and not about the things that I care about or the world. It's just like, I don't care about Twitter that much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like Twitter is for discussing Twitter. And then I guess Substack is for discussing Substack. I, I think that the new tool does fit with the feeling I think that Substack largely has. And I think one of the things that a lot of critics of Substack miss is that it does have like a community vibe, I find, in that the kinds of interactions, at least in my experience that I've had, like with, with and I don't know how much this is Substack versus just email as, as a medium and podcasting, are are very positive in a way that a, a lot of interactions that I've had before are usually just people yelling at me <laughs> if I got something wrong or, or they thought I did wrote something that like wasn't the way they wanted it written. So I think, I think it makes well, that's sense. That's kind of cool. That's I think it makes cool. sense for that because what I've noticed, and I think one of the reasons that I sort of regret not doing paid from the beginning is I think the, the impetus to subscribe paying subscriptions on Substack is slightly different than a normal website. It's less transactional and there is like a feeling of, I want to support this existing in the world. And I think community is an obvious way to add that kind of value to, to the product. It's actually really expensive. You know that, right? What is? Relatives. Well, I, I subscribe to, to, to a couple of folks on, on Substack and I think I pay like 10 bucks a month for like garbage day or platformer or whatever. That's the same price as Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've been, I've been doing a little price analysis and generally it's between like a hundred and $200 a year. Right. At least for the Thinking. ones that I see. I mean, if you're going to like do a poetry one or something or a cartoon one, you're going to have to charge less, but I'm going to do a poetry one. You should. I'm glad they've gotten out of the politics thing, though. I mean, I'm just glad that they're shipping products. But I do think that 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 it has a lot of promise. There's some stuff I don't like about it. They like emailed every, they spammed everyone. I like lost like like 15 subscribers because like 
they sent an email to everyone that I didn't ask them to send, which pissed me off. But well, related to that, I asked you how do new social networks emerge, and you sent me an article. What was that article about? Because I thought that was cool. Oh, about like they emerge as tools or toys. Toy- excuse me, as toys. As toys. Yeah, I think people would like to to understand that. Yeah, Chris Dixon, 2010. He said the next the next big thing will emerge as a toy, and like people will dismiss it. And then it will become something real, which, uh, okay, you know, I think that so that, Vine was a toy, and Musically was a toy, and yeah, I love your answer. As a, Twitter was a toy, but so was so was Yo. I mean, so it was a toy. The problem is like separating the like the bullshit toys from something that there's a kernel here, and it becomes something actually real. But I do think that the the opportunity for the next social network. One is more vertical. Like I do think that we're going to smaller spaces. The idea that everyone in the world should be in one large room, I think we've now come to the conclusion that that is a very, very bad idea. <laughs> we do not want the world in one one big room. So smaller rooms, I think, would be better. And so I think that's what what Substack can do. It ideally is. I don't want to have those conversations on on Twitter. I used to use Twitter a lot more. I use it more for consumption now. I don't use it for self promotion or stuff like that. I'm not good at that. Uh, I well, hate you know, you have your own brand of sort of little wisecracks. That's what you use. Yeah, it for. I know, but that was the the original Twitter. It was like wisecracks. It started with like, oh, I'm having it for what I'm having for lunch, and then it's like one liners, and then like everything in digital media became over optimized. And it became basically a multi-level marketing scheme. Okay, but I do think I do think anyway it's going to be smaller. And the new the new social uh, like social utilities that will exist will not look like uh, you know Facebook and Twitter. They won't be mass. They'll be smaller and they'll be more private. I mean, I, I think young people, particularly, I hate older people talking about young people, but you know they're not going to gravitate to the stuff that like their like older siblings did. It's never the case. Well, the last bit of advice that I would give on Twitter, if Elon asked me, is I would say, Elon, the world is basically unchanged since high school. Everything was high school. So divide up the constituencies, right? You got the, you know, like the famous Ferris Bueller thing, but, you know, I don't know what they are, but they're like the cool kids and the theater kids and the burnouts and the smart and righteous ones, the weirdos, the jocks, the in-betweeners. And I think that if Sachs and Elon and those people had it their way, David Sachs, that is, you know, they're like, we're going to own the libs. And this is like, fuck them. Like, we're going to, this is free speech. And like, here's the thing, the, the kind of smart, righteous kids that were in the kind of mega group at high, in high school, they never had good parties. No one went to their parties. They weren't well, yeah. cool. And the thing is, is it if, if those guys chase all the cool kids out of Twitter, there's no Twitter. You can't chase the liberals out of Twitter. They're the cool kids. Yeah. So you better make it work for them or they're going to go somewhere. Yeah. And you I need mean, them. Otherwise, you become true social. No one wants that. I mean, I think this is all part of a piece of the technology industry broadly sort of really breaking up with their version of like elites 
so they they don't view themselves as elites, which I find hilarious because <laughs> they're they're rich, they're powerful, they have like massive platforms for their every thought that they have. So it doesn't like, but still they're oppressed and that's fine. Their their definition of elites are usually people from the Northeast. You know, you could make uh, $75,000 writing for New York Magazine, but you're you're an elite to, to David Sachs and his Atherton, like, sprawling uh, mansion. But, okay, it's not a money thing. And so I think that there's some deep-seated dislike, if not, like, hatred for their conceptions of the, of the elites, which is usually progressives, and it's the media. I mean, and I hate when people talk about the media, but... It's very clear. And I think that they're overshooting themselves. Like most people don't like journalists. That's fine. Right. But like, I think they might be overrating how likable they are, generally speaking. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think Elon's more likable than David Sachs. I think Elon's kind of an in-betweener, right? He was kind of nerdy, but likable. You know, he was interesting. Yeah, well, I think the reason why he's he's extremely popular and he's like a pop culture figure is he does stuff that regular people would imagine that they would do if they were billionaires. Like most billionaires are completely boring. I've only like interacted with a few billionaires, but like this is my like they're very boring. They they work all the time. Like they work nonstop, which I would think if I was a billionaire, I might like sort of no, he's yeah. really interesting. He also, you know, Take he's a foot he, off the gas he, every now and he's again. Rocket, he, yeah, I mean, he he's rocket man. He's challenging, you know, uh, the way we think about the world and the things that we can accomplish. And he's, you know, kickstarted a whole revolution in in in, in transportation and all that. And I mean, it's all very admirable because, look, if you're like a billionaire, like the the smartest billionaires you've never heard of, right? You've never heard of them. They have normal lives. They don't need to like be out there. They're not being attacked. They don't like, it's fine. They've got like, they operate in the shadows and that's like great. He's taking a different path. And I think that's on on one hand, that's pretty admirable because he's really like going for it. <laughs> and, but I do think people see him and they're like, wow, I, I would, I would do shit like this if I, if I was like the richest guy in the world. Okay. Let me doing. ask you, can, do you mind if I put you on the spot for a second? Not at all. Uh, I happen to have a phone call kind of like this, but I, a couple days ago. So imagine that Elon Musk's guy, well, let's call him for you. I'll call him Musk. Musk has this guy call See, it you. It sounds weird. Right. As the, and he says, we need, we decided we want a head of editorial for Twitter. Are you interested in the job? Me? Would you go? No. To, yeah. No. Would you do it? No. And it pays really, really well. Better than anything you've ever been paid before. I uh, no, I wouldn't do it. No, I mean, no, and the, well, and the reason wait. is, is because why? I mean, you, am I making I like, you uncomfortable? No, I like what I'm doing. I mean, I don't okay. think he's going to offer me the job, but no, I mean, that's just not a, uh, that's not interesting to me at all. I'm not interested in Twitter in general. I don't find Twitter that, that interest. I, I'm shocked that people are as interested in Twitter as they are. But so, but you don't object to going to work for kind of Team Musk? You mean like ideologically, like or something like that? Spiritually, ideologically, whatever. Yeah, not really. I mean, like, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like have that. That wouldn't be the the sort of factor of it. I mean, as long as the people you sort of work with are like you know respectful and normal to a degree, I, I wouldn't have 
an issue. I mean, I, we've all worked for people that we don't agree with. I think, at least I have. I worked for Jason Calacanis. I mean, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so if I started there, I mean, why not? Yeah. All right. <laughs> that clearly didn't stop me, at least. Although Jason did one time, he like called me into an office and he was like, do you respect me? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is bad. <laughs> What'd you say? Ah, I sort of danced around the, the topic and then I got laid off a month later. <laughs> I don't. I think there might have been. Think there might have been a connection. He replaced me actually with Rafat Ali, which is kind of funny. I thought. Is that uh, the guy that did? Is did skift? skift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a decent trade. <laughs> decent trade. I don't know, maybe. All right. Where are we? Where are we going? Good. Good. We're going to good product. Good product. Okay. What do you have? Do you have I'll one? tell you what I got. Yeah, I got good product for you. Offices. So, Here's my good product. Then you'll give, we'll go both. Offices. Good product, but flawed product. I, I spent two days in a WeWork this week, slumming it in a WeWork. My first two full days in an office in uh, over two years. And... Yeah, it's kind of nice. Like I like commuted. I just walked there. It was like at the end of the street, basically. There's the weather, security. the weather's been nice to you, right? Yeah, New York, right. man. And Seventy I got degrees. This, I got this nice view of like Brooklyn and and stuff like this. And there's 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 people walking around, strangers that I don't know, and they seem busy, but like in a non-specific way. And then you take breaks and you go and you get a cup of coffee and stuff like this. The only thing that was missing was people to talk to. Hmm. So it's a good product, yeah. but I got sick. I got sick the first day. I was there one day and I got sick. Coincidence? Not COVID. Not COVID. No, of course it's not. The offices that I, in two years, I was basically not sick once, except for when I had COVID. And then I go back to an office and I got sick in one day. So I'm still saying it's a good product, offices. Okay. Just okay. not every day. Just not every day. Okay. So I read this thing. Here's my good product. I was reminded of a product I like today when I read an article about the popularity of Roku City. Roku City is Roku's screensaver. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's a illustrated kind of backdrop of, you know, what is like a slow moving pan of, of cities in a set in saturated colors like purples and reds with little Easter eggs in it. And I think they sometimes put little billboards in it, advertising stuff. But it turns out, I think during COVID that people really got to like it because the TV was on 24 seven in people's houses and it was always going to the screensaver and it was a charming thing that became something that people loved and they talked about it and put stuff on YouTube and all that. So turns out the guy who made it now works at Pixar and the, funnily enough, I, I sort of thought about it, that the thing that people talk about with regards to kind of Roku original programming, they talk about the screensaver, not their original programming. It's kind of funny. But the, my good product isn't that. My good product actually is the Apple screensaver on Apple TV. I love it. I can watch it. Why? What is it? I, I don't know. I don't know. The... Well, it's... It, in incredibly high resolution, beautifully filmed city, nature, and underwater scapes. 
but when they do it, they do it all Apple-like, right? Like they take two to three weeks per shot. They have like this guy, I don't know what his name was, Roger Munn, who's like a famous cinematographer that did Blue Planet, shoot these incredible underwater scenes. And they're so good, they look like they're fake, but they're not fake. And what you, if you actually press the menu button or something like that on the Apple TV remote, it'll tell you where it is. Like they do these helicopter flybys of like Dubai and New York City and stuff. It's just a great thing. I like the Apple screensaver. When you see it, were you, are you thinking, why isn't this an ad? Or is that your former life? I don't think it why isn't it an ad. I don't know. I, well, like you I, know, I, like most people in media, they see this like, well, we can put an ad here. I do think that when I get that sound on do you have a YouTube TV? No. When they have the they have to fill in the local ads that don't come in through YouTube TV with just like a soundtrack. Do 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 anyway, it's just dead air. Okay. But uh it did I don't know what you, you oh, I'm wondering what happens to the next generation of Netflix programming when they have an ad tier. I'm worried about that a bit. Well, one of the things that I, I find interesting with the Netflix ad tier is how the programs were not shot to have ads. Like, I think one of the well, things that- Well, that's why I said next generation, yeah. One of the things, I don't know if you've had this experience, it's like when ads are added last to like websites and stuff like this, it's like you've got to design the thing with the ads like, and it, like, there you can't start adding ads at the end and ads should be part of the the overall product like you can't just oh we'll just we'll just turn on some advertising it's like well that's when like things don't work and i think there 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 have been like complaints now because there are breaks within programs that were never meant to be there they weren't meant to have breaks there you see that a lot of times with with shows that that you know, we're for like European public broadcasters that then come to TV. All of a sudden, it like abruptly stops, and you thought like something <laughs> yeah. suddenly happened. But before we end, Brian, I would add one more good product in the form of an entertainment recommendation because it kind of caught me off guard. My kids insisted that we watch Barbarian the other night, which is a, a horror, new horror movie, I think on HBO, just came out. It has what's who's in it? Uh, Washington, Kerry Washington, uh, and I do, I'm not like a horror movie guy, but I get why people like them because it's really fun to watch them with a group of people. Like you don't pass out. You gotta like they're so they keep you on the edge of your seat. Right? And this one, this one is is really worth watching. So I'd recommend to everybody watching Barbarian. Okay, it's it it's one of those horror films for people that are sort of eh, about horror movies. We're going to have, this is going to be a golden era of horror movies after whatever screen, whatever the one that just came out that, that, uh, that. Nope. That wasn't really a horror movie, was it? They're cheap to make and like streaming has to get their costs under control. You know, they can be addictive and stuff like this. I think that we're going to move it from like the sort of prestige and like big budget and stuff like this. Horror movies, that guy Gunner, whatever his name is, at, at Warner Brothers Discovery, he loves the numbers on those things. They're easy to make. They're cheap. You don't need, like, crazy talent. I mean, nothing against Kerry Washington. And so yeah. I think we're going to see a ton of them. You heard it here. All right, Troy, we're going to leave it there. I got to get to a dinner. Thank you, Brent. Enjoy your dinner. Nice to see you. 
Big thanks to Troy Alex and our podcast editor, Jay Sparks of Pod Help Us. A reminder, please do send me your feedback on the show. You can email me at dmorrissey at gmail.com. And to leave the show a rating on Apple and Spotify. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. I hope it's nice, and I hope the ratings are five stars. Oh.